It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Show episode um, 128. Wow. wow, 128 shows, and today we talk about Jeff Lynn and Rob Wood, Roy the Wood, Lube, the Wizard, and ELO. Yeah, yeah, this is a very Let's interesting celebrate story. Christmas every day. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the Wizard Christmas song is very famous. Um, yeah, uh, this is this is something I I, I kind of wanted to put together because I think a lot of people don't know the whole history here. They, they are aware of ELO. ELO is one of the biggest bands of all time. Uh, in the 70s and early 80s, they had hit after hit. So people our age, we grew up with these songs. Um, Roy Wood is less known, okay? Uh, but there's a connection between Jeff Lynn and Roy Wood. And it all starts with a band called The Move which would evolve into ELO and also Wizard. Okay, Roy Wood would start Wizard after he left ELO. Um, there's a, a point where these guys were, were collaborating. Uh, that became the first ELO album. And uh, really, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing because a, a lot of Americans never picked up on Roy Wood too much. Uh, he really, did, you know, with the move when he was in the move and and uh, in Wizard, he really didn't have much success here in the United States. But in in the UK, he's like a god. Okay, he, every every year, uh, he he comes out, he does the Wizard Christmas song, but also just his the move was were, were really big in in England, and they actually were a big influence on Kiss. Believe it or not, you want to hear the word big, but they had a man that they had ups and downs, even oh, yeah. six fights on stage. Yep, fights on stage, fights on stage with each other, the audience. Holy uh, shit. Yeah, I mean, they used to break uh, TVs on stage with an axe. They did all kinds of crazy antics. Uh, again, the United States was kind of deaf to it. But I'm going to tell the story, and I think it's a very interesting one. So, are we so, ready? Yeah, let's start with, um, you're going to start with the moves first? Well, well, and I'm going to start with it. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. We're going to start okay. talking about Jeff Lynn. Uh, okay. Jeff Lynn, of course, is most famous for, for being the, uh, the leader of ELO. But yeah. he was born December 30th, 1947, in the short end Birmingham section of England. And I just want to mention real quick, too, Birmingham is the center for both of these guys. And uh, Birmingham, we've talked about them in the past, the, the, the band, uh, the, the town in the past, the city. Uh, it's kind of like the Detroit of England. Yeah, because okay, so many bands came out of there. Like, that's a who's who's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, most famously, I guess, would be Black Sabbath and Duran Duran actually came from Birmingham as well. So very working class. Uh, I fucking love Duran Duran. <laughs> I know you do, you big homo. I know you do. <laughs> Nah, it's all right. When I listen to them today, I go, you know what? It, it, it's really not bad music. In the 80s, I made fun of them. But oh, yeah. In the 80s, they were laughable, but yeah. it's, it's, good, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But Birmingham is a, 
is like Detroit. It's it, it, it creates a lot of like hard rock music has come out of there and uh, very similar to what we have here in Detroit. But Jeff was born December 30th, 1947 in the Shard and area of Birmingham. His parents were Nancy and Philip Lynn. And uh, like most of our people we talk about, he was interested in music at a very young age. He, uh, Philip, the father, bought the young Jeff an acoustic guitar for two pounds. Yeah. And he actually still plays it to this day. Wow. Okay. Now, in 1963, uh, he formed this band, okay, when he was 16, uh, called the uh, Rockin' Hellcats. And it featured kind of like Spanish guitar sounds and very cheap, at the time, electrical instruments. And uh, they would change their name a couple of times. They would be called the Handicaps. Uh, they would also be called the Andy Caps, A-N-D-Y Caps. Yeah. They used to play every week at the Shard End Community Center, and they would practice there as well. And they were very popular, a local band. Now, in 1964, band members Robert Reeder and David Walsh left, and Jeff brought in some replacements. But by the end of 64, Jeff decided to leave the band in order to join a band called the Chads. Yep. Now, in 65... Lynn acquired his first item of studio equipment, and it would be very influential on him. It was called a Bang and Ofusion Biocord 2000 Deluxe. What it was was a stereo reel-to-reel tape recorder, which allowed multi-tracking between the left and right channels. Now, this equipment introduced Jeff to what would be producing, okay, record producing, and it kind of taught him how to do it. It gave him the... Uh, the instructions on, on multi-tracking, which is something that later on, especially with ELO, uh, ELO is, you know, they played a lot of great shows. They were known for great live shows, but they are a studio band. And they, they a lot of the magic that comes out of their sound is because of Jeff Lynn's incredible producing abilities. Uh, he just has a, a knack for it. And uh, he learned at this time. As a young kid, he was like 18, you know, learned from this first piece of equipment. Now, in 66, Lynn joined a band called the Night Riders as their guitarist after answering a newspaper. Roy Wood had been a member of this band, but had left a year earlier to form the move. OK, but he was still involved with the Night Riders. He was still friends with them. And that's how he met Jeff. And... uh this would begin kind of a period where they would be working together, okay? Uh, not necessarily reporting together, but they became aware of each other's abilities and that they developed a friendship and that they could work together. Now, Roy Wood, we'll talk about him for a second. He was born November 8th, 1946 in the Kitts Green section, which is a suburb of Birmingham, slightly outside of the city. Uh, his first band in Birmingham was in 1962. He was also 16 when he started his first band. They were called the Falcons. Uh, he left that band in 1963 to join the Jerry Levine and the Avengers band. He then moved on to the Knight Riders right after that, which would later become a band called the Idol Race. He managed to attend Mosley College of Art, but got expelled in 1964. Shocking. Yeah, a bit of a fuck up, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> I got thrown out of college too. I know how it is. When 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 the move formed in 1965 after he left the 
after he left the Night Riders. It was uh, basically created almost as a supergroup from several Birmingham-based bands. Yeah. Uh, one band was called Carl Wayne and the Vikings. One band was called the Mayfair Set. And, of course, you had the Night Riders, which were Birmingham, uh, a Birmingham supergroup, basically. All these guys were very popular in that city. Now, their name actually refers to the move that various members of these bands made to form the group. So they called it, they were going to call it the movement. And then just it being the sixties and everything had to be kind of like cool and whatever they, they shortened it to the move. Okay. So Troy Wood, the moves, original five piece roster in 65 was drummer Bev Bevan, bass player, Chris Ace Kefford, vocalist, Carl Wayne and guitarist, Trevor Burton. The original idea was that the band would kind of be Birmingham's version of the Who. They all love the Who. But after some jam sessions at the Birmingham Cedar Club, the move debuted at the Bell Hotel in Stourbridge in January of 66. They did their first gig. Now, after a few more local gigs, Moody Blues manager Tony Segunda offered to manage them. And at the time, they were, they were doing a lot of covers. They, they didn't really have any originals that they were performing live. Roy Wood was writing here and there, but, but they really weren't performing anything original, which was typical of bands at the time. Bands in the yeah. early 60s, they did a lot of covers. Yeah. What, they, they, they covered a lot of Birds songs. Okay, They covered a lot of Motown stuff. Uh, Carl Wayne did most of the lead vocals. Uh, he was the, the leader of Carl Wayne and the Vikings, so he was used to being a lead vocalist. Uh, however, each member did share harmonies, and each member got at least one lead vocal in every show, even the drummer. Okay, And they often traded off lead vocals with certain songs. So Tony Segunda got them a weekly residency at the London Marquee Club in 1966. Pretty big deal. Okay? Yeah, Popular big deal. Club. Yeah. Uh, he was the guy that could do something like that. And it was his idea to dress them up as gangsters. So they used to wear like pinstripe suits and hats and stuff. And uh, in fact, <clears throat> the early move featured a lot of publicity stunts when they were with Tony Segunda. A lot of outrageous antics. Uh, Segunda would think up things like uh, smash the TVs with an axe. <laughs> they would have a TV and just smash it. Uh Segunda really wanted Roy Wood to start writing originals. Uh, the, the scene was changing at the time. Even bands like, like the Stones were writing originals now, and, and everybody kind of had to start doing that. So um, the first single that, that Roy would, would write would be a song called Night of Fear. And their second single was called I Can Hear the Grass Grow. Now, that mm -hmm. was the very first song I ever heard by The Move. And it wow. was on a it was on a Nuggets collection of, of 60s garage rock. And uh, I loved it right away as soon as I heard it. Now, both of those singles um, were top 10 in the UK in early 1967. Now, they also signed a production contract with record producer Denny Cordell, who was producing the Moody Blues at the time and others. But when they signed the contract, they did it on the back of a topless girl, okay, <laughs> which, which caused, like, a media sensation. Another, you know, 
outrageous stunt by Tony Segunda. Um, Roy Wood now was becoming a big sensation with, with two top 10 singles. He turned his attention to pop producers Eddie Olford and Gerald Shevin to help his friends back in the idle race. Now, the idle race was the Night Riders. They, they changed their name to that. So he was yeah. still friends with them, trying to help them out. In 1967, the band were the first major signing by the new British arm of Liberty Records, the Idol Race. Okay, now only their first single and their first album got released in the U.S. on Liberty. Jeff Lynne and the Idol Race were very well received, and they often appeared on the same bill as the Who, Small Faces, Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? Mark Boland's band. <clears throat> they were even known to uh, to do an electric version of Tyrannosaurus Rex's Deborah, all right, which was a more of an acoustic song. But they used to do it a little bit heavier live. Um, the Idol Race for a minute were, 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 were going to be a big thing. Didn't quite happen, okay? Um, some reasons for that I'll get into. But, but Jeff Lynne was now kind of the leader of that band, okay? Yeah. And... Uh, they were kind of following his lead. Now, Roy Wood gave the band as their first single the song Here We Go Around the Lemon Tree, which was heavily promoted in the fall of 67. But right before Liberty Records was going to release the Idol Race version of the song, the record got pulled because the move put it on a B-side to their single Flowers in the Rain. So they, they you know, the move was just too big that uh, for the idol race to cover them in the yeah. UK, the, the record company felt it wasn't a good idea. So they didn't release the single in the UK, but they did release it in the US. Didn't do anything, but it did come out in the US. Now, the official first single in the UK was a Jeff Lynn penned track by the, you know, for the idol race called Impossible Magazine. And it was released in October 1967. Um, Yeah, yeah. Now, two more singles, The Skeleton and the Roundabout in February 68 and The End of the Road in June 68 didn't really do well. And the Idol Race began working most of the year on a debut album in spite of that. Uh, The group got free studio time, didn't cost them much. Uh, They were they were recording in London at AdVision Studios. So what they did was they would they would all hop a train every Sunday morning and record once a week um, in London. From Bur- it would go from Birmingham to London on the train. Uh, in October 68, the Idol Race released their first album called The Birthday Party. Between April of 67 and March of 68, Roy Wood and The Move went through a ton of controversy. All right. The name, the, the, um, NME, New Musical Express musical paper, reported in April that the move had offered 200 pounds for the recovery of master tapes that went missing. They were stolen from their agent's car. Okay. You, it was, it, it was, it, you think that was a stunt by the. Yes. It was, yes. right? It, I, I, a lot of people say it was. Nobody really knows for sure. I think uh, Segunda never admitted it. But what happened was. They offered 200 pounds for the recovery of these master tapes for their their first album. It was missing. They recorded this whole fucking album and it's gone. Okay, so they nobody 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 
reported the missing, but they were found in a dumpster. Okay, but they were damaged. Yeah. All right. So I, I think <laughs> was never given to anybody, but they were found damaged in in this dumpster, and it delayed the release of their debut album. Okay, it pushed it to March of 1968. It was supposed to come out in the fall of '67. Mike, you know another thing that I found funny? They missed the number one hit. And they lost to a popular group named The Monkey. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, uh, was it Daydream Believer or something? Yeah, Daydream or, Believer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think The Monkeys beat them like twice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, their third single was called Flowers in the Rain. And... um it has the history of being the very first chart single to be played on BBC Radio One. Yeah, and I heard that. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. Very first like rock song, I guess you could say. And it was introduced to everybody by famous UK DJ Tony Blackburn. Now the single got to number two in the UK and it was kind of like more pop, a little less guitar oriented of, of their two previous singles and what they were doing live. Um, it featured some like woodwinds and string arrangements on it. Uh, producer, uh, Cordell, he produced it again. Um, and also, uh, Cordell's assistant at the time was the famous Tony Visconti who went on to uh, be involved with T-Rex and, and David Bowie in the early seventies and yeah. all that, but he was just a sound assistant at the time. Uh, the single came out on Regal Zonophone which was a label in, in England. The promotional campaign for Flowers in the Rain, though, led to a lawsuit because of a postcard that Tony Segunda had created to promote the single. Without asking the band, he created this postcard to promote the single that depicted the UK Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, in bed with his secretary, Marsha Williams. <laughs> All right. It was like a cartoon picture. And uh, Wilson actually sued the move for libel, okay? And he won. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now. Is this the one that they could have get royalties from yeah. the albums or whatever? Yeah. Now, Flowers in the Rain was a number one hit. Or I think the monkeys held them back. Yeah. But, but they made no money off that because they never saw a dime. It, 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 what happened was. All the legal costs of the case and all the royalties from the song had to be paid for by the band. Um, and it went to a charity of Harold Wilson's choice. And that went on for decades. It even went on after Harold Wilson died in the mid-80s, like his estate or family still made, you know, was getting money for the royalties for that song. And just would give it to charity. So their first like major, major, major hit, really, they, they saw no money from. Now, this episode caused the direct firing of Tony Segunda right there, okay? And they ended up hiring Don Arden, who had recently been fired by the Small Faces. So much later, of course, Don Arden would, would be associated with another Birmingham band, Black Sabbath. Yep. And that's Ozzy's father-in-law. Don Arden, okay? Wow. Yeah, Don Arden's daughter is, is uh, Sharon Osbourne. Uh, Don Arden, I think, has since passed, but, but that used to be Ozzy's father-in-law. 
Now, in November and December of 67, the move took part in another package tour around the UK, playing with Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, The Nice, uh, a band called Air Apparent, and The Outer Limits, and also a band called Amen Corner. It was during this time that Ace Kefford from the move became close with Pink Floyd singer, guitarist, and songwriter Sid Barrett. We talked about Sid yep. last week. Yep. Now, Sid, we all know, was a major acid, ca- acid casualty. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, Ace Kefford would go down that road. He would be hanging out with Sid, and they began to drop a lot of acid together. Way uh, too much acid. Way too much. And it led to a lot of problems for Kefford, who basically had a nervous breakdown from it. Yeah. Uh, I guess the guy was wrapped too tight and uh, couldn't handle the acid that he was doing. And it, it, it created a very like schizophrenic behavior. He would break things. He would freak, freak out. And he ended up having like a complete breakdown. Now, <clears throat> because of this, he would like be let go from the band. And it's a very sad story because he was a very talented guy. He yeah, could but... sing, He could sing. He could play bass, but couldn't take acid. That's for sure. Yeah. He bugged the fuck out, man. Yeah, he did. He did. He did. Now, Trevor Burton and Carl Wayne would start trading off the bass jobs now for live shows. Uh, They would take turns playing bass. But the band was now a four-piece, okay, instead of a five. Their third single, Fire Brigade, which is probably one of my favorites from them, uh, became a top three hit in the U.K., the move was also part of the very first Isle of Wight Festival on August 31st, 1968, which for a few years would be a big deal. Uh, the Who would do an Isle of Wight uh, festival. A lot of bands did. Their fifth single was called Wild Tiger Woman, and it was meant as a tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Um, Wood and Burton actually sing backing vocals on the song You Got Me Floating on the Hendrix uh, album, Axe's Bold as Love. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know what? And, and I, I didn't know that either. And uh, when I did the research, I was surprised. I looked it up. It is true. He does get a credit on that album as a backup oh, wow. song. Yeah. But uh, that single, Wild Tiger Woman, really didn't do too good for the movie. It wasn't a big selling single. They brought in keyboardist Richard Tandy, okay, on a track called Blackberry Way which was produced by Jimmy Miller, who did a lot of work with the Stones. Uh, it ended up topping the charts. That was, that, I think, their first number one in February of 69. Uh, Tandy joined the move for a time there, playing keyboards and even bass sometimes. Uh, Burton, however, didn't care for this new pop sound yeah. that, that Blackberry Way had and wanted to have a more hard rock, like blues bass sound. And this became a... a a problem. Blackberry Way, when you listen to it, it's 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 a pretty cool song. Yeah. Sounds a lot like Penny Lane by the Beatles. Yeah. If you it listen does. to it, it kind of has that sound. But, yeah, it's pretty but, much but, almost the same thing. <laughs> it's very similar, but but it's if you listen to the words, it's 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 a dark song. Yeah. Okay. He's just there's there's not it's not a happy kind of kind of song, you know. Mike, but, you know what it was? I think the move I think the move would have been better. If they would have formed a little later, because they had that poppy sound that they would have charted everywhere if they would have been like, if that band came out in the 80s. Oh, from the 80s? Oh, it probably would have been bigger. Yeah. I mean, I mean they, they would have been they huge. Were ahead of, like, when they you were, listen, 
Because when you listen to the music, it was very poppy, very like, oh, but when they but came not out, all it was of a it. time that but, was but weird. Not, but, but not all of it was like that. They were, to me, they were kind of like a schizophrenic band. Yeah, they, they would, change. They, <laughs> they, 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 they would do a song like Blackberry Way, which was like a popish song. Yeah. But then there would be heavier songs mixed in on the albums, too. They didn't, I, I, I like them. I think I kind of liked them more towards the end. Yeah. When they started to get really heavy, okay. Um, but I do like some tracks early on as well. They're very like all over the place. Yeah, so it's, it weren't it's, like, it, like no, no one single album was the same. Everything no, was very not different. at all. And, all and of that them was very different. Yeah, and I think that was due to Roy Wood. Uh, Roy yeah. Wood was 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 very into just like whatever I feel like doing, I'm gonna do, and that's my sound, and and that's it. So because Trevor Burton didn't like what was going on. Tensions kind of rose between him and the band, and there was an actual altercation on stage yeah. <laughs> between him and drummer Bev Bevin at a show in Sweden. And right after that show, I believe Trevor Burton quit. He just he just quit the band right there. He also um, beat up the drummer. <laughs> beat the drummer up, yeah. And they, they got into a fight. They you know? just showed a picture. He had like two black eyes. <laughs> <laughs> in that documentary, right? Yeah, it was crazy. These guys are fighting on stage. It's like, motherfucker, man. What the hell? Yeah, it's, a, it's not the first time band members have fought on stage. It's happened. So Roy Woods and Jeff Lynn's friendship at this point had really kind of deepened, and they were working together. Uh, Jeff was asked to replace Trevor Burton in the move, but he turned it down because he felt the idol race still had some, some you know, a chance to be bigger and, have a hit. Now, their self-titled LP was released in September of 69 in the UK. Two prior Lynn singles, one called Days of Broken Arrows and a track called Come With Me, had flopped earlier in 69. So they wanted to put this album out yeah. and see how it did. Unfortunately, the album would, would bomb as well. So that was pretty much the end of it for them. In January of 70. Wood offered Lynn to join the move again. Okay. And this time he accepted. But it was under one condition. And that was that the move would soon be retired and ended. And him and Roy Wood would concentrate on this new idea they had called the Electric Light Orchestra. ELO. All right. Now, prior to Lynn going to the move... The lineup was Wood for the move. Was lineup lineup was Wood, Wayne, Bevin, and a new a new uh, bass player named Rich Price. Okay, now they would go to America for the only shows that the move ever did here, and that was opening for the Stooges in Los Angeles, and at the Fillmore in San Francisco in October of '69. That's crazy. Opening That's for the Stooges. For the Stooges, right? Now, the band went over terribly at these shows. Yeah. And they, they, I mean, how can you, like, go on when a band is, when, when the audience is expecting Iggy? Yeah. You know, you got to really, I, I, you know, that wasn't going to happen. So they ended up, they did the, only these two shows, and there was supposed to be some New York dates and stuff, but they got canceled, and the band with its tail between its legs, kind of, okay? So... 
Don Arden, their manager, would sell his interest in the move to a cabaret specialist named Peter Walsh. And he began booking the move into cabaret-style venues, which caused a lot of tension in the band between Wayne and Wood. The move were working on their second album called Shazam at the time, okay? Um, uh, Wayne did not like this idea. He, he felt like they were not a cabaret act. They shouldn't okay. be playing in these things. Yeah, so, not a cabaret no, act. No, no. I mean, you just wonder sometimes what these agents think, you know? So it was during this period that Wood, who was collaborating at least in thought with Jeff Lynn, they weren't in the same band yet, um, they were collaborating, they were thinking about starting this ELO project, all right? It was during this time that band members caught wind of, of, of what Roy Wood wanted to do and Jeff Lynn wanted to do, okay? Kind of like a side project, everybody was thinking. But Wayne suggested that they bring Burton back and Kefford back into the move, okay? And Roy Wood... And, and, and Jeff Ling could, could continue with their side project and even write songs for, for the move at the same time. Okay, but Wood rejected this idea, all right? And Bevin and Price did as well, okay? And now there was a new tension, okay? Because Wayne didn't like how this was going. He didn't like the idea of this looming ELO project, I guess, okay? Um there was one night when Roy Wood got into a fight uh, on a, during a show with a drunken audience member. It was in the Sheffield section of the UK. And uh, Wayne was like very pissed off and angry and embarrassed about the situation, getting into a fight with a member in the audience. And he quit the group right there. And that was in January of 1970, a month before the Shazam album was released, their second album. Now, at this point, Lynn immediately joined up with the band, okay? And immediately also what they did was fire their manager, Walsh, and get Don Arden back, okay? Because this Peter Walsh guy was thinking about, you know, cabaret acts, and that's not <laughs> what fucking the move was, okay? So they fired him, bring back Don Arden, and... um Lynn's, Jeff Lynn's role was kind of small at that point. Well, I shouldn't say small. It's not really true. He was, he, it, it kind of like a, was a little bit in the background, okay? He was going to be the second guitarist and the piano player. But he was also going to be writing songs. So he was big in that way, okay? And that took some of the pressure off of Roy Wood, who was really writing everything, okay? And Roy Wood could play multiple instruments uh you see that a lot later on with elo and uh and wizard okay he could play guitar saxophone clarinet you know all kinds of shit okay so at lynn's first show when he joined the move he almost gets killed <laughs> because there was a faulty mic that was electrified and it touched his guitar strings and blew up in front of him wow so, he could have gotten seriously hurt or, or killed. That's so, crazy. yeah, that used to happen a lot. Um, up until the 1980s, really, I mean, you would hear about people in bands getting electrocuted. Remember Keith Ralph from the Yardbirds? That, that happened to him in his house, you know, with a bad mic. So 
the band by uh, August of 1970 announced that they would no longer be playing their older songs other than the track I Can Hear the Grass Grow. All right. And they were concentrating on a heavier sound, a more progressive rock sound with this new lineup with Jeff and the band. Now, the move spent the rest of 1970 in the studio. Um, they owed one more record for their existing contract with Essex Music. Uh, Essex was about to start a label called Fly Records, and they wanted to use the upcoming move record to jumpstart that label. That was going to be the first release. Now, Lynn and Wood were busy overdubbing the album extensively, okay, layering this new sound with piano, woodwinds. Uh, there was even a sitar and even a Chinese cello brought in okay, that uh, Wood had bought. Arden, their manager again, was also busy signing Wood, Lynn, and Bev Bevin as an unnamed band, okay, without Rod Price, unknowingly to him. They were assigned to a three-album deal with Harvest Records, the new progressive label set up by EMI that also included the $25,000 advance, I'm sorry, 25,000 pound advance, which was actually more money than the band had ever seen. Okay. Despite its, wow. its, its success. All right. Uh, Looking on, which was the album was released in December, 1970. Five songs were, wit- were written by Wood and two were written by Lynn. Now you remember Harvest? We mentioned them in the, the Pink Floyd show last week because Harvest was the label that Sid Barrett, signed to as a solo act yep they were all starting around the same time um fly records but by by the time this came out for some reason kind of lost interest in the band it didn't really promote them much um the album still despite the lack of promotion had a number seven hit and uh it was woods track brontosaurus which i was one of my favorite songs by that yeah when i hear brontosaurus i could see how Paul Stanley and, and Gene Simmons were listening to the move at that point as young guys yes. before, before Kiss because it has like elements that almost sound like what would become like Black Diamond off the first Kiss album, the Peter Chris song that he sings. Um, just a kind of like heavier sound than the move had ever done. Okay, Brontosaurus, is, it, it, to me, I, I love that track. Um, the second single from that album was a song called When Alice Comes Back to the Farm. And that, that didn't really chart too well. Um, the song that was supposed to be the B-side to that single was actually held back for the new Electric Light Orchestra album. We'll talk about that track in a little bit. Price's bass lines on that were, were removed, okay, because it was going to be a move song. Price was in the move. They took the tracks out and added the uh, Roy Wood bass lines, okay? Price didn't even know that the move were, make, were working without him on the side until he heard about this new material being made in early 71. Uh, it seemed like no, no hard feelings were had because he would move on to some other projects but return to work with Roy Wood for Wizard. Yeah. Okay, so he obviously didn't hold any grudges. Um, Looking On was supposed to be the final move album, but Harvest Records insisted that a new move record 
be released as the first record of its new three-record deal with the band. And even though that band was supposed to be ELO, okay, so the record company made this kind of unexpected demand. So the final move LP would be released in the summer of 71, and it was titled Message from the Country. Uh, Roy Wood's song, Ben Crawley Steel Company, featured a rare Bev Bevin lead vocal and was done in a vocal style similar to Johnny Cash. A very wow. deep, deep voice, yeah. Bevin's own song that he contributed was a song called Don't Mess Up, and it was sung by Roy Wood, and it paid homage to Elvis Presley, complete with a fake Jordanaire's backing vocal group, okay? And two hit singles from the album, Tonight and Chinatown, were both written by Roy Wood. Uh, they did some television appearances for these two songs, and when they did, they had added two musicians who would become part of ELO, that would be Bill Hunt. He played horns, woodwinds, and piano. And they brought back Richard Tandy on guitar and bass. Now, the debut ELO album was released on December, in December of 1971 in the UK. It was a self-titled album. Uh, but in the States, in March of 72, it was released under the title No Answer. And uh, do you know why it's called that, Rob? Yeah, why is it called that? Because the, the secretary to the American side of, of the label yeah. was calling the UK and trying to find out what the name of this album was. Okay? And she left a note saying no answer because they, <laughs> they never answered the phone. So that became, for some reason, that became the name of the album. It's still, it's still, it's still called that when you get to the first album. Uh, now, that's the sing- good. It's a good, good idea. The single I was talking about before that was held back was the track "One O Five Three Eight Overture." Okay, um, and ELO released that as a single, and it became a UK top ten hit. Yeah. Uh, both The Move and ELO had albums in stores at the same time now, okay? And both did TV appearances during this period. So it was kind of like a point now where both these bands intersected and had stuff out at the same time. But it wouldn't be for long that that would end, okay? Now, ELO's debut and, concert... And it was both under the, the, the one label, right? Yeah, yeah, they were both on Harvest. Uh, yeah. They, they, they kind of like completed two-thirds of their record deal in a matter of like three months. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, they, they really only, they needed three records and the move was going to be one and ELO would be number two and they would have to come with a third one. Well, now, well, I wonder why they demanded that weird thing that they needed another move album. The only reason I could think of, I was thinking the same thing. Um is that the album, the, the, the prior Move album, uh, didn't do that well. Okay, look, looking, looking on, didn't do that well, yeah. that, that good, you know? So, so I think that they, they thought maybe they could get one other hit out of the Move and then kind of segue into it. It's okay. obvious they had a lot of songs. I mean, think about that. In, in a matter of like a year or a year and a half, they put out four albums. Yes. <laughs> Looking on, move from uh, you know from the country. The, the last the last two move records, yeah. and then and then you know ELO, 
I mean, come on. That's, right, a lot of, that's a lot of fucking music, man. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Roy Wood was writing like crazy. So was Jeff. Um, the very first show that ELO did took place on April 16th, 1972 at the Greyhound Pub in Croydon. Um, the lineup was Wood, Lynn, Bevan, Bill Hunt on keyboards and French horn, Andy Craig on cello, Mike Edwards on cello, Wilfred Gibson on violin, Hugh McDowell on cello, and Richard Tandy on bass. Now, this lineup would not last. Okay, this, it, it, they, they released the album, and immediately they, they tried to duplicate the sound that they created on the album live. And the, the early ELO shows were plagued with a lot of sound problems. Uh, it's hard to believe, okay? But, but really, there was no way in, in, in rock music in those days to incorporate an orchestral sound in, nah. with, in with the guitars. What used to happen is the, the cellos and the strings, violins, would be drowned out by the electric guitars there, you know, there was no, they didn't know how to get that fight enough to, to, to be equal with the, with the electric guitars and the drums and everything else basses. Okay. Um, that would soon change, but in the very early days with Roy Wood and Jeff Lent Lynn in the band, they, this was a problem. And uh, Roy Wood found it very frustrating, too, because he was kind of forced to play multiple instruments at every show. Like, you know, every song he was changing instruments. And that was difficult. He was also alternating vocals with the other members. Um, He would, you know, sometimes he would have to sing and play guitar, which he was used to. But then the next track, he'd play saxophone. Okay, so it was a lot of a lot of switching around. Between that and the sound problems, um, there was also a, also a gig, a tour they did, actually not a gig, a tour they did in Italy um, that was a disaster, okay? And Andy Craig, who was a cello player, would leave the band. He'd be the first to leave. And Roy Wood would leave right after that. Now, he blamed the Italian tour and the fact that they couldn't... Uh, produce this sound right live and also that he blamed Don Arden um, saying that he was like mismanaging but it's interesting because when when Wood would leave the next thing he would start would be Wizard and Arden would manage Wizard so I don't think that that was the real reason a lot of uh, the, the media in the UK who were following this, were, were, were kind of saying, oh, Jeff Lynn and Roy Wood had a falling out. Wasn't true. Nah. Uh, both of them, if you ask them to this day, they'll say, no, they're still friends. Nothing had happened. They, he said there, were never, there was never a fight, or in England they call it a row. You know, they never yeah. had a row. I just think he tell you, because the, the, the music that he had put on the album was hard to recreate on stage. That was the problem. I think, I think that was a big part of it. And also, I think... Jeff Lynn uh, and Roy Wood both were probably in that time very controlling. 
mm-hmm. and they they may have not, you know butted heads in a in a in a light way, okay, as to which way with things. Um, but again, there was never a fight, never an argument. Apparently, just Roy said, "I can't, I can't go on with this," and you know, and left. Okay, now when he left, he took Bill Hunt and Hugh McDowell with him. He also took ELO's sound engineer, Trevor Smith. And the new lineup saw a reunion with bass player Rick Price, yep. okay, which in Wizard, okay. And Price brought to the band drummers Charlie Grima and Keith Smart. Also sax players Mike Burney and Nick Pentelum. All right. Now, Wizard, this would be the, the, the Wizard band, okay. Wizard made their live debut at the London Rock and Roll Show at Wembley Stadium on August 5th, 1972. Now, how big do you have to fucking be to have your debut show at Wembley? Yeah, that's huge. That's like, Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's like no one knows who you are, but you're playing Giant Stadium. Yeah. You know, so that's, that was pretty, pretty cool. That was August 5th, 1972. Now, they did a second show at the Reading Festival later on that month. Um Woods Wood had changed his style. He started wearing this very distinctive war paint makeup. Okay, glitter. Mm-hmm. Glam was glam was the sound of the day. Okay, so they really became like a a glam band. They wore colorful colorful costumes. Yeah, um, and they became a favorite of the of the new glam rock scene, which kind of came out of the blue because Wood, you know, was more of a 60s guy, you know, but he kind of morphed into this glam rock figure, which I find fascinating, really. And he, yeah, he was one of the and, and, and very strange looking, I think, because whenever somebody's got makeup and facial hair, that's always weird. Okay, if you got like a full beard and you're wearing like glitter makeup, it he looked like a wizard, right? Yeah, he looked, he did look like a wizard, yes, yeah. he did, yeah, you know, had that star in the middle of his head, and you yeah. Know, but now, I think that's what he was going for, you know. Yeah, that yeah, and, and, and they and they spelled and I got to tell you, they spelled wizard with two Z's. Yeah. So that you know that had to be an influence on Kiss as well, just the the logo, okay? Because the Z was like almost like the S's in Kiss. You, you know, know why they had to use the two um the two Z? Uh, no, I don't know why. It was a copyright infringement. You couldn't use Wizard because Wizard was already taken. They already had a Wizard band. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I, 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 they, there was one. I don't know much about them, but yeah, but that's the only reason they had. Oh, right, they had another Z. Yeah, <laughs> they had another Z. Okay. Now, um, there was some infamous top of the pops performances for Wizard. Yeah, uh, and and, and they, 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 yeah, I sent you some of those clips, right? Yeah, they were fantastic. And, yeah, I mean. They, what they used to do is they would have friends on stage in various costumes. Uh, sometimes they would be dressed like gorillas, okay? Uh, Rich Price used to wear roller skates on stage, okay? Uh, there would be pantomime horses, uh, roller skating angels, okay, all around the stage. So there was a lot going on other than just the band. And, of course, they wore these outrageous outfits, um, sometimes these, these costumed gorilla people would have like, you know, cream pies and they would hit each other with the pies. Okay. So, like, total circus on stage. Their first top 10 hit. It was, was entertaining, per- man. It, it, totally. I mean, it had to be, I wish I could have seen them. Yeah. Um, their first top 10 hit was 
a track called Bell Park Incident. Uh, their second single, which would be their first number one, was called See My Baby Jive and was kind of a, a tribute to the Phil Spector wall of sound. You could really hear this, these layers of, of, of strings and other sounds that Phil Spector was known for. Also, Angel Fingers was the same way, and that was the follow-up to See My Baby Jive, and that also went to number one. Um, the band in 73 released their most famous song at Christmas time called I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Yep. And uh, that's still played on British radio to this day. Um, every holiday season, Roy comes out and, and does the song with somebody. I saw a clip with them doing a, him doing it with Cheap Trick. Yeah. Okay. Um, in 73, Roy released his first solo album while Wizard was still existing. Um, the album was called Boulders, and it was an almost entirely solo album right down to the sleeve artwork. All right, he plays almost all the instruments and, in, and just designed the artwork on the, on the record as well. Um, in 75, he would release a second solo record called Mustard. And on that one, there's contributions by Phil Everly from the Everly Brothers, but that album didn't sell too good. It kind of flopped. Um, 74 was, was definitely a, a good year for Wizard. They had a top 10 hit with Rock and Roll Winter. Uh, despite the name, it wasn't really a Christmas song, and, but it did go top 10. Okay? It was released in the spring of that year. Um, American audiences, though, at this point, were not part of any of Wizard's success in the UK. Uh, one group that was listening, I mentioned it before, was Kiss. Yeah. Okay? And they, they loved Roy Wood and the move particularly. And they, they wanted to bring Roy Wood to America to open for them. All right. Now, this was 1975. And Kiss was brought over to the United States for a few dates. And they were going to open for Kiss. Um, they, they, they liked, you know, Kiss just loved the idea of having them open. Okay. Um, but the fans just didn't get Roy Wood. Did not, did not fly. Okay. The, the outlandish stage act of Wizard with the roller skating bass player and, and people in gorilla suits, uh, it, it, it didn't really go well with the Kiss audience. And they got booed. Yeah. They, got, they got booed extensively. Like, like I think they, there was a couple of shows they off the stage they were booed. All right. So, it, yeah. It's I mean, amazing it's, how um, he did all that. He still did. He, he was doing the band and he was still doing solo albums also, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As side projects, he was, he was doing solo records, which shows it's his. incredible how yeah, much he got working. <laughs> constantly, you know, real hard and, and writing a lot of songs and putting everything out. Now, Wizard, the band, was a very expensive band to maintain, all right, yeah. because of this large lineup that they had okay and costs they were very produced they would spend a lot of time in the studio and uh definitely not a stripped down band they could be exact opposite um they often it meant that there a lot of their the record company profits that they would get went back to the recording costs okay so really they they didn't they didn't make a lot of money okay they they survived off the live gigs Okay, but the live gigs were expensive to do, and yeah. they also had to split the money more than 
a usual band would because they had a lot of extra members playing saxophone and other things. Okay. Um, often what would happen is they didn't make a lot of money and the other band members would go off and do these other side projects that made them a little cash. And that, you know, started to be more, more common than it should be for a band. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it became an issue. So by the fall of 75, uh, the band was, was looking to break up. They did a farewell single called Rattlesnake Roll that didn't chart at all. And they planned a double album called Main Street. And this was actually not released by the record company. Okay. It was supposed to be two records. One would be a rock and roll record. And the other would be kind of like a jazz fusion rock that, Wizard, that uh, Roy Wood was, was into. Okay. The rock and roll disc ended up being released as Introducing Eddie and the Falcons. Okay, it would come out by the, as one, one, one record, okay? But the jazz fusion side of it was never released and thought lost until the year 2000 when it was finally released as Main Street with the Eddie and the, Eddie and the Falcons disc, too. Yeah, it the, way, was, the way it was it supposed was to be. As, as uh, Roy Wood and the Wizards. Right, Roy Wood and, and Wizard and uh, Main Street, they called it, which is what it was supposed to be. Yeah, it was called, called the album Main Street, Roy right. Wood and the Wizards. Right, right. Now, after Wizard broke up, Roy recorded the two Beatles tracks, Lovely Rita and Polythene Pam, for the musical documentary All This and World War II. Yeah. In, in 1977, he formed Wizzo, which was a jazz rock ensemble, who did only one live show. And that was a live show that on BBC television and radio. It was broadcasted at the same time. Uh, but this band did not last. Wizzo would break up after this gig and, and cancel a worldwide tour that they had set up. So that fell apart. Now, between 80 and 82, he released a few singles under his own name or under the name Roy Woods Helicopters. And did some live dates also under that name. But he would also collaborate with Phil Linett from Thin Lizzy and Rick Wakeman as well. Okay. Wow. He, he also put together a band called Roy Wood's Army for a while. But mostly every year, he's, he, he comes out and he does I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day for TV or live shows. Uh, he most recently came out in favor of Brexit and joined the Brexit Party and... You know, that's the, the whole political thing about the U.K. Le uh, leaving the E.U. So Roy Wood is still around. He's still revered, okay, yeah. to this day. Now, after Roy Wood left the, the, the just starting out ELO, um, in, in seven, in, in, in mo mostly what would happen is in, in most of 72, when that happened, the critics were, were trying to write off ELO. They were saying, like, the band is not going to last. Uh, it can't continue. Roy Wood is the main songwriter, and which wasn't really true. Okay, it was pretty much a, an even Steven deal with, with uh, Jeff Lynne. Okay. Yeah. And again, it, it's kind of, you know, Jeff Lynne kind of grabs the reins of ELO at this point and proves them all wrong. Because in August of 72, just a couple of, not too long after Roy left, um, he would put the band together with a new lineup and better equipment 
which helped them with the sound that they wanted to duplicate live. Um, there was something called a Barris Berry pickup. <laughs> a, ba- a Barris Berry pickup. Now, a pickup is what you put on a guitar so it can, you know, the amp can, can produce the sound. Okay. Uh, you see that on a guitar when, when it's playing, like those rectangular shaped pieces that are by the strings. Those are pickups. All right. Now, they were able to put these Barris Berry pickups on the string instruments, the cellos and the violins. And this way they could be heard properly. All right. Because the, the, the electric guitars would drown them out, like I said. And they started working on a second album immediately. Uh, Jeff Lynn was, was now the main songwriter. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, more move material would come out on what was called a maxi single or basically like an EP. All right. Yeah. Uh, one song that was released was a song called California Man, which would not chart as a single, unfortunately, but it would be covered a few years later by Cheap Trick. They would make a, a hit out of it. That would be one of their best, most known early songs. Um, there was another track called Do You? Do You? Question mark. Do You? And that would actually hit number 93 in the United States. So that was their biggest hit, the move, in America. And it was after the band was done. Okay. Uh, and again, Kiss was listening because Ace Freely, a couple of years later, would go on to cover that song. Wow. Uh, they, do, they, they do a very cool version of it. Um, the second ELO album called ELO 2 was released in early 73 and it produced a UK top 10 hit and their first US charting single, okay, which was an elaborate version of Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven. Uh, they also made their first appearance on American Bandstand at that time. Now, a third album came out in late 73. And it was uh, a track on there that would, you know, when I heard it, it's funny. I, I was listening to it last night, and I kind of totally forgot that this was a, an ELO song. And it's a track called Showdown. All right. Now, some lineup changes occurred around this time in ELO. Um, among the string players, they brought back Hugh McDowell, who left Wizard and came back to ELO in 73. So he rejoined up with, with Jeff Lynne. The band's fourth album, El Dorado, was a concept album about a daydreamer. And Jeff Lynne, at this point, changed the sound a little bit. He stopped multi-tracking all the strings and he hired a string manager or arranger, I should say, named Lois Clark. And he also hired a full orchestra and a choir. So what they were doing now was they were actually playing with the orchestra, I think, when they were recording, if I understand that right. Okay. Now, El Dorado became ELO's first gold album. Uh, There was a a bass player brought in named Kelly Grocut. Okay. And basically, he he stabilized the lineup. There had been a little bit of a change going on there. But once that... Once he came in the band, the lineup was pretty much stabilized. Uh, and it was also at this time that ELO had become really popular on the live circuit. Um, they were becoming huge as a stadium act, an arena act. Okay? They also regularly appeared on the TV show The Midnight Special, which was a music show hosted by Wolfman Jack. 
they were on there more than any other band in the show's history. They were on in 73, 75, 76, and 77, four times. In 75, the album Face the Music was released. Uh, the hit singles Evil Woman, Strange Music, uh, were re- and, and, and another track called Strange Music was released. Uh, the opening track, which was, was an instrumental called Fire on High, and it became the theme to CBS Sports, okay, which was a TV show. Uh, the group wow. toured extensively in the USA that year, and they, they started to be known as an act that everybody had to check out. Um, another album in 76 called A New World Record was released, and it produced the hit singles Living Thing, Telephone Line, and the remake of the move track Do Ya. Okay, they did their version of it, too. And that was a, a hit. Through early 77... And Mike, these guys are pretty much taking almost an album every year at this point. Almost, almost twice a year. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, I mean, the amount of material this guy was writing. Roy Wood, yeah, too. Like, Roy Wood, too. But, but Jeff Lynn, forget it. I mean, the amount of material this guy... They were comparing him to Paul McCartney. Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, he's like a new Paul McCartney, they were saying. Through early 77, they continued touring extensively, and they, they ended up doing a, uh, uh, an appearance at the American Music Awards as well. Casey Kasem, who we all remember, America Top 40 guy. Okay? Yeah. All right. And the voice of Shaggy on Scooby-Doo. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, <laughs> he called them the world's first touring rock and roll chamber group. Okay. Because they had this big operatic sound. In 77, uh, they released the multi-platinum album, Out of the Blue. Uh, it was a double LP. Each of the hits turned to Stone, Sweet Talking Woman, Mr. Blue Sky, and a track called Wild West Hero. The band set out on a, month, on, on a nine-month tour with this enormous live set that featured a spaceship stage. Looked like a spaceship. Wow. Fog machines laser lights it was the highest grossing tour in music history up to that point okay which would it would end in 78 so that was the highest uh grossing tour more people went to CELO than anybody in history in that year okay wow now in 79 uh they they released um the kind of disco flavored album discovery okay and which I'm looking at, it's funny, I never realized this. Uh, if you look at the word discovery, it's, it's kind of like disco. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose, but the hit off that album was the song Don't Drag Me Down, which was really, I think, their, probably their most popular selling single ever, okay, in their career. Uh, another track called Shine a Little Love did very well, too. Uh, but they were kind of getting a little criticized, had a little bit of a disco flavor to it. The rock fans kind of turned off to it a little bit, but it, it, it still sold a ton of albums. Now, by the end of 79, with this album, uh, ELO kind of peaked with their stardom. That would be their highest point. And between 1979 and 1986, the band did some interesting albums. Okay, They, they changed sounds in between. Uh, they, would, they would do something... Uh, more electronic sounding in 81, an album called Time. Yeah, but you, sort skipped of a, the, you, you skipped the uh, soundtrack I, I, I'm not, line. I'm not, I'm not skipping it. And, but in 1980, 
okay? They had a big hit with Xanadu, all right? <laughs> now, the, mo- the, mo- the movie bombed, okay? The Olivia Newton-John. You know what? Uh, you know, I'm going to say it right here. You like Duran Duran? I actually fucking like Xanadu, all right? I, 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 it gets such a bad rep. It, it's a, they say it's a shit movie. I enjoy the fucking. Oh, I, I enjoy the movie with the roller skating and the yeah. gods and shit. And, and yeah, and fantastic. fucking Olivia Newton John's in it. Come on, it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, and uh, you, you remember the guy? He's he's Swan from the fucking Warriors. Is in that movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, it got a bad rep because it's corny. Okay, it's but the soundtrack. Corny, but- it's the great. soundtrack did the soundtrack did amazing. It did way better than the film. Okay, uh, now several lineup change, changes would happen. Uh, they would come out with an album called Secret Changes. Uh, I believe that was in '83, and then the final ELO album called Balance of Power was in '86. And Jeff Jeff Lynne broke up the band at that point. Now, in the late '80s, Jeff went on to be in the supergroup. The Traveling Wilburys. Yeah. All right. And then you had Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, and George Harrison in that band. And he struck up a friendship with George Harrison and ended up producing Harrison from Cloud Nine in 1987. That's the album with the song I Got My Mind Set On You. Yeah. Okay. Jeff Lynne produced that album. Now, over the years, there would be some reunions. Uh, a lot of retrospective collections, box sets came out of ELO. Uh, they ended up doing a reunion, and in 2019, they did a North American tour from June to August of that year, uh, and they ended up releasing a 14th studio album called From Out of Nowhere. Yeah. And they were supposed to take off and, and hit the road, but, uh, you know, COVID happened, okay, and that got postponed. So maybe they'll, they'll come back next year or something like that. Uh, and, of course, in 2017, they did – get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that's what I got for you today, Mr. Rossi. That's the wow. story. What'd you think? Fantastic, man. These two guys, Jeff Lynne and uh, Roy Woods. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and you said, and, and when, I, when I brought this up, you said to me, I don't know shit about these two guys. No, I knew Jeff Lynne, but I had no idea about... Um, Roy I didn't Wood. even know who uh, Roy Wood. Yeah, to yeah. this. Yeah. And it's crazy. I heard that Christmas song all the time. Yeah, and you didn't know who it was, right? Yeah, it was. It was like, oh man! And then I started reading and watching. I said, I know who these. I know who these slapsticks are. <laughs> <laughs> I All would right. love to. I would love to see a, a really good wizard collection come out, like a box set of like all their albums or something. Okay, because I I, I got kind of re interested in them just doing the research to this show, and. You know, the stuff like that they came out with, like the Eddie and the Falcons, yeah, which was half of that Main Street, it's fucking great. Yeah, that's great. You know, and, and, and there's almost a, uh, I don't know if people are going to agree with me, there's almost a Frank Zappa kind of vibe to some of his stuff. Oh, there is. There you totally know? is. Yeah, you know, and, and, and almost like a satire. Like there's a humor to it that that maybe you gotta you gotta really listen to you don't pick up on right away, but but and also everything he does is like an homage to something else, you know he had an homage to Elvis he had an homage to Phil Spector and 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 uh, Johnny Cash and you know I, I just enjoy Roy, Roy Wood I, I wish that he would have been bigger in the United States, but unfortunately the two times he played here he got 
booed off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I hope everybody enjoyed the show. A little bit different kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, very but, different. You know? Very different show. Um, so, Mike, how can people reach you? Okay, you can find me on Instagram, RockerMike212, RockerMike212. You can find me on Clout Hub and also on MeWe under RockerMike. Uh, and of course, on Facebook, the uh, Rock Show podcast group page we have, and under Rocko Mike. Rocko Mike. What about you, Rob? And you can find me on anywhere getting lumped up. Just look getting lumped up on YouTube, on uh, Hulu, on everywhere where I'm all over the place. So um, you can uh, email me at uh, Rob uh, Rossi at gettinglumpedup.com. If you want to send me an email or got a question about the show, or if you have any ideas of shows that you guys want oh, us yeah. to do, definitely. We always can take. Uh, we always take advice, and we also got the group page. Yeah, yeah. Let us know. Uh, I always talk to talk to the fans about ideas on who to cover next. Uh, I will be announcing September's shows coming up in the next week or two. Yeah. Uh, we're doing August shows right now coming up. Um, this was the end of, um, I think this is the end of July. Now it's right, August. right. We got another, we got another four or five shows lined up and then I got to come up with some new ones. I got some good ideas. Next week's show I believe is on Dion. Dion yeah, from Dion, Dion the Belmonts. That's going to be a good story. Yeah, um, we're doing that. We're also doing, what else we doing? We're doing Sonic Youth. Yep. Yep. And the uh, heavy metal Jonathan band, Richard, the, the heavy metal band the Wasp. Yeah. Wasp. Yeah. And the heavy making metal. of the Who's. Quadrophenia. Quadrophenia. Yeah, yep. we're going to talk about the making of that album. We'll talk about the movie a little bit, a little bit, which we, you know, everybody should see. Um, okay. So hey, you every- think we'll reach, uh, by the end of this year, you think we'll reach a 150 show? Would that be by 2002? Uh, I got to count into it. Because we're up to, after the was, we're up to, to 133. So that would be 17 weeks. Yeah. That's what, four months? Yeah. So, yeah, man, we might hit that in December, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 We'll have to have a special show for that. We'll have a spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have, you know, gorilla suits and roller skating fucking bass players. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, Rob. Mike. So remember, don't get drunk. You get lumped up. You get lumped up. See you next week. Have a good Take one, care, guys. Bye bye. Podcast you will hear that will be music to your ears. You'll learn about bands you love or may not know, and it's only here on the Rock Show. Let's get lumped up on the rock show.